engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, save on select steel battery tools. Right now, save $50 on the FSA 57 battery trimmer set. Real steel. Find yours at steeldealers.com. With AK-10 battery and AL-101 charger, offer valid for limited time only while supplies last. See participating dealer for details. As a guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days in the field. This show is about translating my hard-won experiences into tips and tactics that'll get you closer to your ultimate goal, success in the field. I'm Remy Warren. This is Cutting the Distance. Welcome back to what I like to call the mail sack. This week, we are going to be answering all of your guys' questions, or as many as that I can get to within the time allotted. Uh, thank you guys all so much for sending in. I, I got a lot of questions. Also, a ton of great feedback. Last week, we did a podcast on packs, how to pack a pack, how to pick a pack, different pack features, different types of packs, everything packs. I got a ton of great response on it. A lot of people saying like they learned stuff they didn't know they didn't know. So anytime I can do that, I think that that's a win. I think there's a lot of great information. So if you missed that one, that's definitely, I would say, uh, now having done that and heard the response, I would put that in the top must listen to podcasts of some of the ones that we've done. There's a lot that are very specific to certain species, certain times of year, certain type of tactic, but Man, packs are just very all-encompassing for this type of hunt, especially if you've never done a Western-type hunt, mountain-type hunt, or maybe you've done it your whole life and just realized, wow, I've been loading things wrong. I didn't realize that I needed to adjust the pack to myself. That's a great one to go back and listen to. So thank you guys so much, too. I've, I've seen a lot of awesome comments come through. Um, thank you, guys. I, I appreciate those ratings and those comments and, and just uh, sharing it. I had a few people, new-time people listening. So welcome to the podcast. I like to do some Q&As. Um, try to as, as often as possible because I, I really do want everybody's questions to be answered. And, and I know I can't get to all of them, but also feel free to kind of keep updating those questions. If I didn't get to yours once a month, I try to group things into that are very similar to other questions. And then there's always some uh, questions that I think, oh, nobody's really asked that, but I, I'm intrigued by it. So keep those coming. Uh, this week I was actually, I'm supposed to actually be hunting in 
Hawaii right now for Axis Deer, which I was pretty excited about. Had some friends and planned a trip and we're going to do some filming stuff. Um, but that trip got delayed, unfortunately, because the random times that we live in, I took my COVID tests and my test actually got lost. And you have to do it within a certain window of time, within a certain, it's like within three days of your departure, whatever. And so I'm waiting for the results and they're like, oh, wait, we don't have those. So I missed my flight, but uh, was able to go get another test, which already came back negative, was able to change my flights. And now I will be hunting in Hawaii soon. I've been kind of jonesing to get out and get some hunting in. It feels like it's been a while, um, especially when I'm used to being like in the South Pacific this time of year, uh, hunting or doing whatever in New Zealand or Australia. Um, so I'm, I'm excited and got some spring bear hunt stuff planned for a little bit later on in the season. I like to go a little bit later. I, I kind of like that spread it out. I don't want to, I don't want to burn out all my hunting op options right at once. So spread it out toward the end, tail end of the hunting season for spring bear, but pretty stoked to get out. And I love spring hunting because you get, you get to mess with like some gear tweak with your gear. Like this time of year, I always think of it as like testing stuff out for the fall, whatever it is, just getting out, whether it's like looking for sheds and going on a hike and breaking in my boots and doing all that stuff this time of year is just a lot of fun because I just got my mind focused on like fall season. And I'm very fortunate. I get to go out and do a couple, uh, some really awesome hunts this time of year as well. So it's fun to just play with some stuff. I've actually ordered a bunch of just, you know, you see like other things that you haven't tried before and you're like, Hmm, maybe I should, maybe I should mess with this new release. Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should do this mess with different broadheads, mess with different arrows. So uh, it's a fun time of year for me to just kind of mess with some stuff. And there's actually quite a few questions on some gear, some bear hunting stuff. So let's get into that and uh, dive into our first question. This first question comes from Ed. He says, new hunter tackled wing shooting for upland and waterfowl this year, moving on to big game this fall. I live in Washington, but plan on moving to South Carolina next year. I want to buy a well-rounded rifle for big game, like a 6.5 Creedmoor. Is it productive slash ethical to use a multi-species gun for open Western style hunting big game and thicker, brushy Eastern big game? Or do I need to buy two different calibers? Hoping I can just buy one rifle and invest in two different optics. Question is... Uh, getting long, but I think listeners would also like to hear a recommendation for optimal hundred yard range vortex scope. Uh, that's, that's a good question, especially if you're, you're just kind of getting into hunting. I am a firm believer in the one gun philosophy. Um, now the one gun philosophy does not mean you should don't, I guess that's a double-edged sword because I'm also a firm believer in owning as many guns as possible. That's like my 401k, just buy more guns. Right. Um, but I would say like when it comes to hunting, I really like to just have my hunting rifle and I use it for everything for a very long time. I mean, I hunted everything. I'm talking everything with a 300 short mag. I have shot, um, some of the smallest antelope in the world with a 300 short mag, a steen buck in Africa, and then gone all the way up to like moose size animals, um, elk, whatever with the, that same rifle. And, you know, you can, you can swap loads you can do whatever you can always load a bullet like a heavier bullet in it i generally just pick one bullet that shoots well that can handle a range of game and hunt with it the cool thing about having that one rifle that you hunt kind of everything with is the more you use that rifle the more comfortable you're going to be with it 
And, you know, you can't really name a rifle until it's got a lot of time under the belt, had some great adventures. So, you know, a rifle really has to earn its name. So I, I suggest, yeah, just get get one rifle um, that you think you can use for whatever. A 6.5 works great. I mean, it's uh, you can kill elk with it. Um, you can shoot deer with it. You know, it's not too much gun. It's not too little gun. I think it, it's a good caliber. I mean, you could honestly pick really whatever suits you. You could go from 270 up to 300 wind mag, and I think you'll be fine. For me now, I kind of like, I've got some other rifles. I'm like, oh, it'll be fun to hunt with this rifle. And that's pretty much, you know, yeah, you can specifically tailor a a certain rifle or a certain caliber to a certain type of hunt. And that's fun too. Um, Yeah, you can absolutely buy the one gun, especially just getting into it Buy a 6.5 is a great, I mean, it's there. A lot of people are stoked on it. It's a great caliber. Go for it. And yeah, you can absolutely hunt kind of anywhere with it. One thing I would just look into, I don't know. Um, South Carolina rules. Some, a lot of states maybe don't have rifle seasons. They've got shotgun, muzzleloader, or archery. Uh, you could even use your shotgun with slugs and a scope topped with that. If you're hunting real thick brush country, it sounds like you've been wing shooting. So that's another option to think. Don't think that deer hunting has to be just with a rifle, uh, a, a slugged or buckshot shotgun with, um, you know, depending on if you're tree stand hunting or maybe brush hunting, something that's fast target acquisition, you could even probably top that shotgun with like a, um, red dot type scope or a real low power scope. If you're in the brush, that's pretty good. I know in some of those places, you know, deer drives are popular. Uh, it's kind of not becoming as popular that, that style of hunting's kind of going i feel like it's kind of going away but it's it's actually cool driven hunts are actually pretty fun um kind of a a different different way of hunting but um honestly i don't even know if i would swap scopes around i just get one that you can go down to like one and a half or three power there's a lot of variable scopes and just use one setup for everything i mean i like the idea of it but i'd maybe just think of getting a a scope for my shotgun and then a scope for my rifle and get a scope that you can kind of do that western long range type thing but it'll be perfectly fine for uh any other kind of hunting and honestly the type of scope you know just depends how much you want to spend currently i i mean i think the best scope that vortex makes right now is probably the um lht the razor lht light hunter tactical it's fairly expensive but it's got like if you're serious about shooting far and having some a really good sweet lightweight setup i like it it's got everything that i like um but honestly there's there's a lot i mean dude you could just pretty much just go through pick up a price range that you want to spend and you can definitely i've got enough product breadth to pretty much pick something for uh whatever you like so i would just probably top that thing with a good western hunting scope that has a good variable zoom and you can zoom it out enough to hunt wherever you want with it and then maybe even think about just getting like something like a red dot or a a lower magnification uh, for your shotgun Um, or even just like uh, you know I think for the shotgun close range you don't necessarily need anything crazy just something that's light gathering quick uh, low magnification I I actually like even on shotguns or I put it on a, a large bore rifle Oh, I, I can't, it's like some of the guns, uh, scopes designed f- for like AR platform rifles, real big ocular, smaller objective. It doesn't let in as much light, but when you throw it up, it just like, it's easy to see through clear. Those are pretty sweet on shotguns or even, you know, on a rifle, whatever. There, there's a lot of different options out there, but hope that helps. All right. Next question comes from Dustin. 
He says, first of all, thank you so much for all the great content and knowledge you share. It's so motivating, entertaining, and educational. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My question is, on a typical backcountry hunt, what is the max amount of people you take with you? I know you're known for being a solo hunter, but as a professional guide, how many people do you have in your group? Uh, I'm a father of four kids, ages 6 to 14, who all love hunting and love being outdoors. With the four kids and wife, it makes six of us crashing through the trees. Hard to be stealthy. Because of this, we tend to stick to the roads and avoid spot and stock and definitely avoid all backcountry hunting. Any help or strategy for bringing a larger group into the backcountry? Again, thanks for everything. That's a really good question. And actually kind of, uh, I mean, I, I haven't actually seen this question posed this way, but I definitely think there's probably a lot of people that could benefit from an answer to this type of question. Uh, when I'm guiding, you know, most of the time it's probably three people, so myself and two others. But I've had, is I mean, I've been in groups of, when we're filming, um, we might have like, if it's two hunters, there's probably two cameramen plus another guy doing other stuff. So I've been on hunts with as many as five or six people in tow. Um, and yeah, six people, whatever. Like there's, I've definitely been on hunts where there's quite a few people. I've been on hunts with my family, where it was me, my three brothers, my mom, five of us out there. And it's definitely doable. Um, you know, I think, six people on a stock, it's like, well, it depends what kind of stock you're doing. If you're rifle hunting or whatever, it's definitely possible. I would just say, you know, get out and and give it a go. A lot of it too is just for the fun, for being all together, camping, set up, everybody's got their little backpacks on. I remember, I mean, we did a lot of backpacking trips with my family, do a couple backpacking trips in the summer to some fishing lakes, get work the kinks out. But when it comes to hunting, I think it's, it's absolutely doable. You know, for the most part, if you're planning a correct stock, uh, you could have one person or 10 people and it shouldn't make a difference. You should plan the stock where you can all kind of get within range. Another good option is with that many people, you know, maybe having a couple people hold back, do some hand signals, guide you in, and maybe you and one other person go on a stock. Um, there's, there's a lot of good options and it's a really fun way to just get out and enjoy the outdoors as a family. I definitely wouldn't let the number of people hold me back. I think that there's, um, still a lot of success to be had. And I think you guys will have some of your most exciting, memorable times and memories as a family doing something like that too, or at least giving it a try, you know? Um, and also I think it's one of those things you could be flexible too. If you've got, I know a lot of people that have big families, they like to go out and hunt together. You know, they might set up a nice base camp and kind of drive and hike and go out from there. I think that you shouldn't, uh, necessarily think that it needs to be regulated to one type of hunting. There's definitely a lot of, a lot of spot and stock, a lot of, I mean, getting everybody up on a glassing knob and you've got a lot more eyes, you're going to find some success and it's going to, it's going to be a lot of fun. So I definitely say it's doable. It's absolutely doable and you should give it a try and then report back. I'd love to see some photos because I bet you, you're going to have some, uh, some pretty big smiles in those pictures. So keep me posted on that for sure. That sounds awesome. All right. The next question comes from Ryan from Texas. He actually got two questions here. One that I missed before, but uh, I get a lot of these questions through the messages on Instagram. So when you resent this new question, the other one popped up and I'm going to answer them both right here because I think they're really great questions. Uh, The first question says, can you explain the wet aging on your podcast? Never heard of it. And that question came when I uh, shared some stuff about wet aging some axis deer. So aging meat is essentially like letting the rigor mortis break down. Uh, what it does is it, it creates, um, a more tender, 
more tender steak. So if you just shot a deer or whatever, right off the bat, cut a steak off. If you do it right away, it's actually pretty tender. If you wait an hour or two, um, it starts to, it starts to get really tough. So like camp, camp meat, I generally eat the heart because of the rigor kind of affects it less than, um, like a back strap, which might be super tough that first day or first couple days. So the aging process allows that rigor to break down. Now there's a, uh, a lot of people have heard about dry aging. So that's, you know, you get a dry aged steak. What it, essentially aging is like a controlled rotting process. So it's, it's allowing that muscle to break down when you dry age, you're keeping it under refrigeration, you're moving and circulating air around it. And it's, it's drying out. Uh, people go from who knows, you could age it for a few days up to, I mean, 30 days, um, I personally, like, you know, you see on a menu at a restaurant, dry age, 30 day dry age steak. Not my thing. <laughs> I don't, I don't really like it that much for a few reasons. Um, I do dry age meat too. I kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, but I like a, a red juicy kind of fresh tasting steak, not like a juiceless mushroomy tasting steak. I love mushrooms, but I don't necessarily like my steak to taste kind of moldy. Um, and really long dry aging process does that. Yeah, it's tender, but I don't, me personally don't like the flavor. Some people love that and, uh, it demands a high price tag. So that's cool. But one thing I've realized too, with, with wild game, some that drying process, you do get some waste. The outside kind of creates this crust and then it starts to get black on the outside and you do have to trim away, um, to get that, that, more tender steak inside. What I prefer is uh, a more of a wet age process, or I will kind of like hang for less time. So, I mean, I, I'll go up to a week. Um, I think 10 days is a little starts to push it on my end for what I personally like. But what I really like is a, a wet age process, which involves sucking the air out using a vacuum sealer. I have a chamber vac sealer, but you can use any vacuum sealer. You just want to make sure you, you get all the air out. And what you're doing is you're, you're taking out the airs and that air is what causes the meat to sour. So if you just put that steak in like a Ziploc, like let's say you cut off a piece of backstrap, whatever, put it in a Ziploc and put it in the fridge, it's going to soak in with the air that's in there, the blood, and it's probably going to, I mean, if you get a week out of it in that condition, that's pushing it. You know, you're, I mean, food safety wise, they probably say four or five days, like um, it's going to start growing bacteria and start spoiling. When you suck all the air out of it under vacuum, uh, you could actually leave that meat into the fridge for, I've heard as much as like three months. That's like in the refrigerator. And what it's doing is it's not spoiling because it, it doesn't go, the air doesn't affect it, but it's also breaking down the rigor process. But the cool thing, as opposed to dry aging, you don't have as much uh, meat loss by like the crust. And when you cut into it, it's still like a red juicy steak. I'll generally like wet age mine for two weeks, maybe a month. If I'm traveling, I always bring a little vacuum sealer with me. And it's a good way. Like I know people that maybe have like, they're like, Hey, I live in an apartment. It's hard to butcher. Like, where do I put, like, I don't have fridge space for, to hold big pieces of, elk. what do I do? Like sometimes I'll be in the field. I always bring like, Oh, like a foldable fillet knife, whatever. I will butcher my stuff up. I've got my little vacuum sealer there. Uh, one that actually I can run off my car and I don't use the chamber vac for that, but I'll vacuum seal and then put it in the cooler, like butcher it right then and there. The, the trouble with butchering it right then and there is you can't let it hang for as long. Um, and then what I could do is I can take some of those and put them in the fridge, uh, as long as you don't like cold shorten where it's like 
got rigor and then you freeze it. You let it sit for a few days at least, maybe five, seven days, and then put it in the freezer. And then when you pull it out of the freezer, you could also continue the aging process um, like before you cook it. So you could pull it out, let it sit for a week and whatever. Um, or you could just leave it in the vac bags in your fridge for weeks, a month, whatever you want. Um, you know, just make sure that you know, I would check them, make sure like open one up every so often, just make sure, okay, you got a good seal, no oxygen is getting to it. It's not going off. It's not spoiling. Uh, I learned this kind of technique, uh, when I was living in New Zealand and, uh, a lot of butchers and a lot of friends down there did this similar thing. And man, the results were like so much better. And I've, I've done it. Uh, that's kind of my primary way of aging stuff if I can, but also, you know, maybe just hanging stuff for a little while and then you can do it. I like to do it the fresher, the better. And then like butcher right away, vacuum seal, and then set in fridge and let age. So that's a good way to do that. Might even have to do a full podcast on some of the other aging techniques, but I feel like that was pretty thorough. The other question. So for the Q&A, just listen to the newest episode on spring bear hunting. For those of us living in the South where uh, there aren't any bears, can you talk about public land bear hunt options, success rates, ease of access, tag options? Uh, love the podcast. It's one that I never miss an episode. Thanks. That That's a great question. And that's something that I really didn't cover that I think a lot of people had questions for. So I mean, spring bear tags are very accessible. Uh, I don't, there's hardly any, I mean, there are a few draw bear tags, but almost every state out West has some form of over-the-counter bear tag. I'm like literally almost every state, um, Montana, Idaho, I'm pretty sure Wyoming, uh, Utah doesn't really, but, um, there's some in Oregon, California even has over the counter bear tags. And honestly, California is probably, I know people would be like, what? I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but Hey, maybe if more people go out there and support it, then it'll have less chance of going away. The best state in outside of Alaska for large bears and bear hunting is the state of California. People probably don't know that, don't realize that, but there are some giant bears there. There's a lot of bears there. Um, there is no spring season, unfortunately, if they opened up a spring season, I would say that that would probably be the best state in the U S for bear hunting. if they had a spring season for California bears, but, um, literally almost every, uh, Nevada does not has a draw, but, uh, Colorado, I think you can get over the counter bear tags. Um, so almost everywhere has some bear tag, some point of the year over the counter. Most bear tags are available for statewide there's a lot of area, a lot of public land. It's probably the easiest thing to uh, have access to hunt. Uh, New Mexico has uh, over-the-counter bear tags for the fall. I mean, just like there's a lot of opportunity to hunt bears in different states over-the-counter public land. Um, So you just got to really just pick a state, somewhere that you want to go to, somewhere you want to check out, pick up a tag, you know, research what, what tags there are, but really you can pretty much find a lot of different places. And then as far as success rates, uh, I would say spot and stock bear hunting probably has some of the lower success rates for uh, any species outside of like, it probably hovers around kind of like 12, 10 to 12%, maybe less, but there's guys that like, I mean, the guys that understand how to spot and stock bear hunt are probably close to that hundred percent. It's just like anything else. Um, I think that one of the, the struggles is, like a lot of the stuff that I've talked about in the podcast, people don't know. And I think that if you were just to look at state success rates for bear hunting, whether it's spring, whether it's fall, whatever, they're very, very inaccurate as far as like 
effort and success. So I think if you went out for a week of bear hunting, I would say, and you had like, you're in a good zone and you had the skills, I would say it's like probably, I don't know, 20 to 50% success. I don't know. Probably 20 to 50% success rate. I bet you if like you looked at published success rates for bear tags, it's probably like 2%. And the reason is because most people that live there, whatever, they just buy a bear tag. And if they see a bear, they shoot it. But it's one of those species that like you may encounter them randomly and maybe you encounter it and see it and you're like, oh, I'm way back here. I don't want to pack it out. If you specifically go to target bears, you will find more bears. It's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, you bump into them, but I rarely bump into bears when I'm hunting other things. When I'm specifically targeting bears, I see quite a few bears. So I think that that's one of the factors um, in the success. So, you know, if you look at his area and you're like, oh, whoa, whoa. 10,000 people bought tags and 100 bears were shot. That's really bad success, but it's just people use it as an incidental tag to other things. And once you recognize that, then um, I think that you will kind of get a better picture of how the success looks and picking an area with good bear densities will always help. But sometimes you go to places with lower bear densities and there's just fewer hunters. So you can balance that yourself. I would say just starting out, almost all bears have to be checked in. There's a lot of data on bear harvest areas where there's lots of bears. Um, most of the data comes from hunter harvest reports. So you can kind of look that up on state websites and figure out where you want to go from there. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. 
Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on Seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. All right, this question comes from John. He says, your podcast has truly made me a better hunter. I owe your great experiences and success to the knowledge I know. I have a question. Can I use elk diaphragm mouth calls to locate moose? I hunt in eastern Ontario, so we aren't privileged to hunt elk, and I've lost hope in the way uh, my camp hunts moose. Hopefully, you can help me think of ideas to help uh, the success. Cheers. That's it. That's a good question, John. So, um, as far as a dia- using like a diaphragm type call or whatever for moose, I would say I don't really know of any. Um, but that does not mean that you cannot call moose. Calling moose is very fun. One I guide have hunted. Uh, I've have never had a tag myself, but I've been the guy calling them in for many people for Shiras moose. Uh, I've had the opportunity to hunt Alaska Yukon moose. I've never had the opportunity to hunt Canadian moose, but they're still moose and they can be called. Most moose calling is done by voice calling. And I think that it's a fairly easy call to make. I think it's the easiest. I think moose are like one of the easiest animals to call in. Um, so what I'll do uh, there's a few calls that you should know. And I think that these, these are just fun. Like not a lot of people get the opportunity to moose hunt, but I get enough moose hunting questions that I probably should just do a moose hunting podcast. But for now, I'll just, uh, do a little rundown of, of different kinds of calls that I use. Uh, one of the, honestly, one of the more effective calls for moose is not even a sound that moose make, but just that raking sound. I'll use, um, sometimes like a, a paddle, like a, literally like a boat oar. I I've even like walked around with one until I found this like really good fiberglass, um, moose tube that I is, gosh, I don't even know the name of it. I hope maybe somebody can, um, try to look it up at some point, but, um, it's like this fiberglass moose tube that I got someplace in Alaska. They sell a lot of them in Alaska. It's good because you can make the moose sounds through it. And, uh, it's kind of just like a fiberglass, megaphone, if you will, like non-electronic, obviously, but it's just like, I don't know, but it makes a really good moose antler sound when you rake it up against bushes. Um, so I think that that's, that's, you know, something like that works really good. I mean, some people just use their hands. I, I use my hands a lot when I'm calling. Um, so the first sound would be like a cow sound and that's more of like a nasally whine. Let's actually, let's just go with the easier sound. Let's go with the bull sound. So bulls make kind of a grunt sound. Uh, I'll do it through the tube or whatever. I like to plug my nose when I make moose sounds. I'm going to set my uh, headphones headset off real quick and we'll try this. I'll try to get close enough where I can still make the sound and give you a little demo of how to do it. And everyone, whether you're going to moose hunt or not, this is a fun time to just make some animal noises. Okay, so the first sound is just going to be like a bull sound. This is during the rut. Uh, a lot of places like September, beginning of October, good rut time. Like for Shire, the lower the lower down you are, I say like the sooner uh, moose rut, the further north you go. I think they, they start rutting a little bit later, but it's kind of in that same time. I kind of think of it as like same time frame as elk, but a little bit later. Um, so let's let's start with the bull sound. It's just a like a oh sound. 
oh. So I plug my nose and I get, I try to make the call from like down in my stomach and so it's a sound. I always just start by going and then get it deeper and deeper. So it starts like from your stomach. And like a little bit of an exhale after that. If you plug your nose, I feel like you get a vibration at the back of your throat to make it a little more realistic. And obviously, I'm just kind of doing this hunched over a small microphone on my desk that was on my head as a headset. So I don't know how well it's going to translate, but uh, that that's the first sound. And then the second sound is kind of like this. Um, I like during when they're running this like cow whine. And I've used this sound for moose like moose can be actually pretty curious to calls they're very solitary animal like they're very solitary but they don't mind like running into other moose i've actually like called moose that aren't rutting but just out of curiosity it's a good way like if you're walking around you spook a moose or whatever make these moose sounds a lot of times they'll stop swirl around kind of like bull elk do when you're it's outside the rut but you blow an elk call um so this is the a cow sound uh, more nasally plug my nose you could do this through the the moose call tube or whatever and it's just more of like a whine sound so you're just whine sound i plug my nose and you can even like almost like shake your hand on your nose to get more like vibration in it that's a good sound to kind of uh interest bulls and whatever you got going on um and and calling moose is really fun one thing you want to think about when you're calling moose get into an area where you see sign and then like start your calling i like to start i start by uh grunting put the microphone back on so i start by grunting like and then because what i want to do is i want just in case there's like a bull that he might step out or he might immediately grunt back um then i mix in some raking and i throw out those those longer cow calls those cow calls travel a lot further so if you know that they're rutting if it's that right time of year you can draw them in from a longer distance when you when you're in a good spot call like it takes them forever to come in (laughs) honestly so Find a good spot where there's like, let's say you've got good moose habitat, a good um, a good meadow, maybe a good feeding area, maybe some sign, but you're like, I'm not seeing any moose. And call in the same place every day. Like I know people that um, they kind of set up like stands. Like if you got an area of thick timber and overlooking a meadow, maybe build like a little platform and you can call from that platform and see around. And sometimes like it might take them a day, but if you like, if you call from that same place regularly, they might hear it from a long ways off and it just takes them a long time to come in and check it out. And they oftentimes come quiet. Like they aren't real loud callers to respond. It's not like bugling or bugle, bugle back, but, uh, you know, kind of keep calling in those same areas and kind of make like a call circuit and give the bulls enough time to, to get into your call. And I think that you'll find some success doing that. And I'd love to Shoot me a picture when you get a good bull or any bull. I'd be stoked. All right. This question comes from James. He says, hey, just listen to the Spring Bear podcast. So much good info in there. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and experience. Unfortunately for me, where I live, Spring Bears isn't an option. 
Could you do in-depth podcasts about fall bear hunting? Most info out there on bear hunting is spring bear. I'm sure the tactics are different from April to August. Thanks. That's a good question. I, I think that that definitely could be, uh, I got a lot of questions about fall bear hunting. And like I mentioned earlier, there are some places that do not have spring seasons. One thing I will say that is 100% true for spring bears is like, think about it in the opposite fashion, but the primary thing is finding that food source. So the food source is, is definitely going to change, but there's a lot of good, for, there's actually sometimes better and more targetable food sources in the fall. Um, and it just, just depends on water, the type of year, the type of terrain you're at, uh, things you can look out for berries, um, like acorns, like mast crop type stuff, real, like the fall actually has some real high protein. If you're in an area by the ocean or whatever, you've got running fish and running salmon and all that kind of stuff obviously makes a big difference. But, um, focusing in on food sources, rose hips in the desert country, like anything that's different where you're like, Hey, you're looking at it. Like where I hunt like more desert type terrain. Um, I'm looking for things like pine nuts, rose hips, uh, water sources. Another thing that works in the fall too, if it's hot, like August, those wallows, those water sources, um, but find the food, find the bears, find the food, find the sign, find the bears. It's, it's similar. Now in the opposite fashion, I think a lot of people don't find bears in the fall because they think like, oh, they're spread out, whatever. They're, they're more like the season timing can be shorter, but I also think that people don't think about like the right type of terrain for spring or fall bear hunting. Uh, as it gets later in the fall, as you get into like, you're like, okay, well, what are they eating in October? Well, okay. The, maybe the acorns are gone. Maybe everything's gone. Maybe it's like, okay, almost that hibernation time. Well hunt where they're going. They're going to be going flipping high. So you want to get up there. You want to be up where that snow line is like up in that open and start looking for bears moving off to where they're going to spend the winter. And that's a really good place to start thinking. If you got, let's say you got a mountain range that is a uh, 3000 foot valley and 12, 11,000 foot peak, look in that 7,000 foot range, like in the, in those big canyons, in those openings where they might be those, um, South face slopes that are going to pack in with snow and start glassing those, maybe even start glassing some of that snow. Maybe you'll get lucky and get some snow in there and they're going to stand out pretty good. Uh, that's a little, I should probably shouldn't have given people that secret, but that's a good secret to think about. It's like the first place they come out of is the first place they're going back to. So I think a lot of people don't hunt high for bears in the fall. You will be kind of above the pack if you're hunt, if you got later hunt. And then earlier, um, I think earlier fall, if you're hunting fall, uh, the earlier you can hunt, the better. I mean, their hides might not be as good or whatever, but uh, August, September is probably the best time for seeing bears out just willy nilly hitting food sources. Um, I see a lot more bears uh, hitting water and, and being around those wet spots in like September timeframe, August, September. So those are really good places to concentrate fall bear effort. This question says from Eric, he says, Hey Remy, I'm new to archery and wanted to know how you choose arrows you shoot. Any advice would be greatly appreciated and helpful. That's a great question. Um, obviously I first match the arrow spine and then I see what's available. I really like, I'm particular about everything. So I like things that are super accurate. I shoot day six arrows, um, I know the owner really well. And I just like, actually, I know if you probably message him on whatever and be like, Hey, what arrow should I shoot? I mean, that's literally what I, I'm like, Hey, I mean, he knows arrows better than 
anyone I know. So uh, I always ask for his recommendation first of like, what arrow should I shoot? But he knows my like setup style. I really like a heavy arrow. Um, my current arrow, I just, I, that's one thing I've kind of, I was talking about just like this time of year, messing around with different stuff. I right now am shooting a little bit lighter, just kind of a different spined arrow than I've been shooting, but one that I could get a little bit more weight out of the arrow. And then I'm just adding a little bit more weight in the tip to kind of rebalance that spine for tuning. I think right now I weighed this new arrow that I'm trying at, uh, just a little over it's 600 and something grains for the whole arrow, which, um, is fairly heavy. I mean, hunting arrows can range from four to three. I mean, I've seen, it just depends on your draw length and how much weight you're shooting and whatever. Um, one thing with the heavier, so I like a heavier setup because I feel like you get, well, you're get, you're going to have a little more kinetic energy. You're going to have a little bit more, uh, weight, maybe get deeper penetration. Cause I like, I mean, I hunt elk. Um, I like to be able to not worry about hitting something in the shoulder and I like a pretty solid setup. Uh, the downside to shooting a heavy arrow is your pin gap is a lot greater. So, you know, your margin of error and, and exactly estimating the range of that animal, if, you know, it's, it's honestly personal preference. So I think anything in that like 530 range is a pretty good weight, like total arrow, broadhead, everything where your pin gaps, not super big, but also you've got enough weight. And then, um, one thing I did notice, I, I just started shooting like a, this much heavier arrow. I think it's, uh, oh, man, can't remember the exact grain sprint number, like 11 something. Um, and I shoot a pretty long arrow, but I've got a pretty long draw length, 30 inches. So, um, one thing I have noticed is the heavier arrow is affected by wind a lot less. A lot of the places I hunt, like where I practice shooting, it's windy every freaking day. So that heavier arrow I've noticed is just more accurate during my practice sessions in that wind, because I actually don't even have to adjust for it. Uh, a lot more mass traveling through the air. It's a little bit harder for that crosswind to, to move it. Uh, but it is moving a little bit slower than my previous arrow, which was probably around 530 grains total arrow weight. So, um, I don't know. I really like the day six arrows. I've been shooting them for about a year now and just like super accurate. Um, I switched to one of the other things I was trying. I mean, this is just me kind of talking about my setup and a little bit of the things that I, I mean, I mess with stuff a lot. <coughs> I actually have a bunch of different arrows, a bunch of different tips and I just get like a sample. That's what, I don't know if anybody sells it, but a sample pack of arrows would be awesome. Like just different, like maybe you could get six of one type of arrow, just different spines and different weights and other stuff. And you can mess around with it with different weight tips. I got, I just bought a bunch of different weight tips to just try to find like the best tune, the best flight, what works best with my bow. Um, but I did switch to four veins, uh, just, this on this arrow i've really liked it it stabilizes the arrow faster for fixed blades or from what i've heard and i find i found that i was shooting um fixed blades even out of like a arrow a bow before i even tuned it they were flying fairly similar to my uh field tips which i thought was pretty sweet so um that's something to think about maybe trying a little bit of four vein action um, but that, that's just kind of my thoughts on arrows. I know people want so much details on arrows, but I think at the end of the day, you got to go with what you like. Some people like a faster arrow. Some people like more weight. I prefer more weight. If I'm going to error on one side, I'm going to go with more weight. And I think that's, uh, that's just the way I like to go. Question comes from Joshua. He says, Remy was curious what kind of hearing protection you use while hunting. Um, 
that's a good question. <laughs> Currently, I'm using a suppressor. That's the best kind of hearing protection. I've got a Surefire SOCOM 300Ti. Pretty awesome. But outside of that, I just I don't even know who makes them. Um, I like the kind that are like the hard plastic that go around my neck. So I've always got them there. You might see like Solo Hunter videos or whatever. You see me wearing those. Find them on Amazon. Find them wherever. I should probably just like find some and sell them on my website because I do I do use those a lot. I like that kind. I've bought many different brands. Um, I don't necessarily know if the, the particular brand matters. It's just I like having them handy and they're comfortable and you can wear them all day, especially when I'm like uh, bird hunting or whatever. I've looked at – I see these like – if I, for wing shooting, man, those like molded ones that go in your ear, I used to see them at the sports show all the time. And I was like, always thinking, man, I'd really like that. I'd really like that. And they're kind of expensive, but what's the price of your hearing? I think I might look into that next time the sports shows ramp back up. I don't know if there's probably a way that you can do it at home now, but, um, if you're like serious about it, those seem pretty good. Any kind where you can kind of hear a little bit through it too. Um, but also cuts off the high decibel levels. Sweet. But it just got to be something that honestly, in my opinion, has to be handy that you can grab and you aren't fumbling for. And the kind that I wear around my neck, pretty awesome. I'll just keep, keep them in my pocket. And then if I'm getting into action or whatever, I can put them around my neck. Sometimes I just leave them around my neck all the time. Sometimes I forget they're there and take a bunch of pictures with them on and they go, why was I wearing those? <laughs> it's a goofy picture with my head headphones on, but um, that's what I use while hunting. All right. Uh, we'll go a couple more questions here. This one comes from William. He says, howdy, Remy. Like to hear your thoughts on multi-purpose trips. Example, spring bear turkey trips and scouting for fall deer elk trips. The same time, shed hunting to help out with late season spots, etc. Thanks for all you do. Keep rocking. Will P from Texas. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my spring trips, especially in the mountains, um, are really primarily designed at thinking about spots for the fall. One thing that you'll notice, especially when it comes to like, what I want to do is I want to find the, I, I like to go out the times where the spring mimics the mirror of the fall. So if you think about our seasons, right, you've got like summer opposite winter, spring opposite fall. Um, now, while summer and winter, I would say are polar opposites, I think spring and fall are the same thing in reverse, you know, so, uh, spring is, is everything's coming up and the snow is going away and fall is the exact, I guess it is opposite, but like everything is dying and so snow is coming down. But if you were to split spring and fall out and look at it, like, okay, what's the snow doing? What's the grass doing? What's everything doing at the very early part of spring and the very end of fall, there's very little vegetation. Um, and then like, you know, as you go closer to the other side, it's the exact opposite. A lot of, a lot of vegetation, a lot of vegetation. So what I like to do is I like to put spring and fall in a mirror in, in a way, like a theoretical mirror. And I like to see like in my areas, where is the snow level in the spring that kind of matches the fall and like what time and find those, like those spots where, spring and fall, like that, that perfect timing where they mirror each other, where the fall season is open. And then that's, this is, I should probably should just stop talking now. Cause this is like a secret that I probably shouldn't give out. Um, <laughs> it's too, it's too in depth. Uh, I'm losing all my money telling people too many secrets. Uh, but anyways, and then I like to use that springtime to like find that mirror of the fall and scout then. And that might be, I, and I can do other things at the same time. Maybe I'll bear hunt that particular area that time of year and see like what deer around. And I noticed that in that kind of mirror of the fall when the snow and the whatever is kind of similar, the, the 
plant growth and everything, you start to find animals in the same type of places. Like, especially in migratory areas, like let's say whatever California deer. That's a that's a big migrating deer herd, and where the deer are in the reverse going back up is where you can kind of find them in the fall going back down. So you try to find those mirror spots could be for elk, could be for mule deer, could be for whatever. And yeah, you may be looking for sheds in an area. I, I find sometimes like where I find a lot of sheds is only good if you're hunting like a late season winter range hunt. Uh, I don't necessarily think that it really translates to the fall super well, but it is a good idea to know what kind of deer are in your area. Now, if you're talking about places where there's not a big transient herd or it's all local stuff, then yeah, I mean, you can kind of use those spring activities to, to really showcase what that area has and, and get you out and get you moving around and get you learning and exploring new areas. But uh, finding that mirror in the spring and fall by doing other and doing other activities at that time, super secret, awesome way to be more successful and, and spread your scouting out throughout the year and get other stuff in. All right. Last question here comes from Matthew. He says, uh, where to set up camp for elk in September? Uh, how far from where the elk live should I set up camp? I get this question. I think that this is probably one of the most uh, asked questions I get and kind of one that I always think about, like I'm like, put it on the back burner. But I think that this question is going to be a great podcast topic. So, uh, Matthew is not the only person to ask this question. Many, 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 many questions have come in like this. And it's one that I think kind of like some of the pack stuff I take for granted. I, I, and as I think about it, I think that it's one that needs addressed. So the answer to that question will be next week's podcast. If you've made it this far uh, and you're like, dang it, I want to hear it next week, next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel. I will be breaking down the whole camping process, where you set up, how I set up, what I think about camping, uh, how close to the animals, what's like a good place to camp, what's not a good place to camp. I'm going to answer all those burning questions, which based on the amount of questions that I get from that, I should just write a book on it and I'd sell a lot of those books. So I thank you guys for all your questions. I thank you guys for all the comments and I hope to see you back here next week to get the answer to the burning question of where to set up camp when you're hunting. All right, catch you guys later. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, save on select steel battery tools. Right now, save $50 on the FSA 57 battery trimmer set. Real steel. Find yours at steeldealers.com. With AK-10 battery and AL-101 charger, offer valid for limited time only while supplies last. See participating dealer for details.